This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, Mr. Next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Kate Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. The whole team is here. Audie Weiner straight away. Shane Jensen to my right. Eric Bradlow to my left in their usual spots. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning, Kate. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. Glad you guys are listening. You can join the conversation. We wish you would join the conversation. Give us a ring. one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Drop us an email. Emails businessradio at SiriusXM.com, business radio at SiriusXM.com, or add us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is our handle. You can send us questions, observations, complaints, suggestions, over, under ideas, whatever you got. We follow the world of sports analytics up there. Not a bad way to stay in touch with that whole thing. We're going to be here for the next two hours. We have guests at the bottom of this one and the top of the next one, as usual. For the next half hour, open lines. Guys, I've been away for two weeks. This is the last time I'm here. For 2018, this is the whole crew. This feels like a bit of a holiday show in a way. Bowls, postseason, all kinds of things. I'm very curious what has caught your eye in the world of sports. Well, I, are you guys going to bring it up or do I have to talk about I'm it? I'm going to make you talk okay. about it. But I'm not great. You, you want to bring up that first? Yeah, you you want to talk about the miracle ahead, in Miami? The miracle in Miami, yeah. Yeah, let's talk uh, about but, that. You know, props to you for forecasting that one. Oh, yeah. No, it's a horror show every year. I, I, I mean, it's a different kind of horror show every year. You can't really predict what's going to happen. It's just going to be disadvantageous. There it is. Can you explain what happened to me? Because I didn't see it, and I didn't quite understand Well, it. okay. I mean, there's a lot that went into that play, but mostly... Uh, being a defensive player? Well, that play? I mean, that that's explainable. Okay. Yes. I mean, it's not it, was not... it was a very incorrect decision, but I mean, it's the explainable. explanation is that Gronk often actually is, goes in as a safety in plays... Um, where they expect a Hail Mary. So, I mean, one way you can score from way down the field at the last second of the game is a Hail Mary where you throw it into the end zone yeah. and everybody goes and jumps up. And in that case, having a really tall guy that has great hands is very advantageous to you. And Gronk's actually been very has has actually, you know, batted down, down, yeah. batted some, down Hail Marys. Just some background like information, that. though, for you, Adi. The reason why, not just in hindsight, but in foresight, it was a mistake. Was okay, Miami was at its own thirty yard? Miami was at its own thirty yard line. That's too far to throw. Is that what you? That's mean? the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the, they should have had the analytics to suggest that Ryan Tannehill can't throw like a ninety yard pass. But <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, so that was at least the rationale for him being in there. Is they maybe anticipated a Harold Mary? What they did—that's not what Miami did. Of course, they did this crazy hook and lateral thing. Um, that worked out, and so Gronk instead was needed for his speed and tackling ability as opposed to his height and, and, and catching ability, and it turns out he's just not as good at running and, and, and tackling as he is at catching a jump ball. So, yeah, his his presence there was a mistake. Well, so that, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phenomenal yeah. play, it's, and it, you know, teams... 
you're always disappointed when your team gets in these situations and they don't even have a chance at a Hail Mary. They have to do this lateral thing. Yeah. And it always is this, you know, exercise in futility and balls end up being fumbled. After do they it. practice this? Uh, yes, they do. But okay. the point is that they, it happens a lot, but it, it it almost never works. And so for this, and especially at the pro level, yeah. here's the question. is: Are there any real consequences? What are the consequences to the Pats? What are the consequences to the Dolphins? Well, I mean, uh, there's, oh. I mean, I guess. Psychological. Shane's upset. Yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the immediate consequences, I was kind of bummed out on Sunday afternoon. I don't know if we really need to take note of that. But, um. Uh, no, I, I, as far as playoff consequences, I mean, the, the, the Pats did, I mean, obviously it was disadvantageous to them to lose. They would be kind of, I mean, it, it looks like they're still kind of in the driver's seat for the, for, for the buy and all, and all that stuff, but they could have been, they could have very much, yeah, I mean, they could have been basically locked into that buy with a yeah. victory there. My preseason um, arm is taking a hit. Chance also. for the number one seed. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's that the, was worth interrupting that's, before. Yeah. <laughs> That's the that's the uh, big impact, I think. I think the big impact is the following. I think um, their chances of getting the one seed now are very low because uh, they're nine and four, and Kansas City's eleven and two. They do hold a tiebreaker, but now instead of being two games back, one game back, they're two games yeah. back. So they're probably not going to get the one seed. Nope. Um, their margin of error. They were very fortunate that Houston Texans lost to the Titans at home because otherwise the tight the Texans would have passed them for the two seed. Correct. So at the moment, if they win out, they can do no worse than the two seed. So that's that's very advantageous for them. For the Dolphins, it saves their season because the Dolphins are now seven and six. They're in that big mass of teams. There's three or four teams in the AFC fighting for that last wild card spot, and they're now one of them. I, I, we know the Chargers. Unfor- you know, the one year the Chargers seem to be great again, they're behind Kansas City. They're going to go like thirteen and three, and they'll be the five seed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, but the Dolphins. So we know. I, don't, I mean, I don't think the Dolphins are going to make the playoffs anyway. No, I don't but either. I mean, I, certainly it Why did not? save the season. Well, because Baltimore is better than them and well, has could, an easy could, do record. Have, do they control their destiny? I, I, no. They the don't. Do, the okay. Dolphins do not. The no. Dolphins do not. Of among the seven and six teams, they're not the favorite right now. Yeah. But it certainly put it this way: it gives hope to the Dolphins that they're they're seven yeah. and six. I think if the Dolphins do win out, they'll probably what are their make chances the chances if they win out. The chances we have that number, I can chase it down in one second. But they have to go to Minnesota this week, and so they're I don't know. That's like a touchdown touchdown underdog or something. Yeah. They, the, the, and then Jacksonville and Buffalo. So the last two aren't too bad, but you know, winning three games in a row in the NFL. Period is tough, but to do it as a mid- yeah, I mean, a middling seven and six team. If if it, if any of that mass of teams, there's like three or four teams basically at seven and six. If any of that mass of teams wins out, they're going to make the playoffs. But the chances of Miami being that team that wins out is the know, one thing. Well, I, it, it also made me think about was you know uh, you know I actually I just did a comparison. We always talk about this every year about how much lack of turnover there is in certain sports. Like for example, we know pretty much with almost certainty which NBA teams are going to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Just so you know, if the season ended right now, there would be a 50% turnover of the playoff teams in the NFL from last year. So, for example, the Falcons made the playoffs last year. I'm pretty sure they're not making it. The Bills made the playoffs last year. I'm Falcons pretty sure came within. Of a- going to the Super Bowl. The Bills, I'm pretty sure, made the playoffs last year. We yeah. can say with certainty they're not making it. The Jaguars... We know made the playoffs last year, gave the Patriots everything they could handle in yep. that game. The Panthers made the playoffs last year. They're not making it. Okay, but Eric, now, this is, my sense is that this is pretty typical. Yeah, no, right. that's what, that was my comment. Yeah. My comment was football about f- is very different than other sports. I'm not saying this year is abnormal for football, but if we compared it to, to basketball, basketball sure. I don't even know. In, well, hockey, just so many teams make the play. But I would say in hockey, 
in baseball. I don't. You think there's going to be a 50% turnover in baseball of who makes the playoffs? Well, there wasn't last year. I mean, it was about 50. Is it about 50%? I think that's about right. In baseball? Is it no, that high? No, it's no. First of all, there's 10 teams, so it's not 12. Um, and that includes the two wild cards. But I mean, baseball them- is, I mean, in terms of the proportion of teams that make the playoffs, I think baseball is the best comparison, right? Because, I mean, basketball and hockey, it's like half it's the half. teams basketball make the playoffs, so, so it's kind of hard to... Com- you okay. can compare those two to each other. I think it's harder to compare like basketball to football good, good. with those that difference in proportions. But baseball and football seem to be on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of predictability. Yeah, that's all I was saying. It's just that there seems to be a massive turnover. And some of these teams, by the way, <laughs> yeah. just, to, just you know, some of these teams that aren't going to make the playoffs aren't close. So it's not like, well, they just got beaten out. I mean, the Jaguars were in the AFC Championship right. game, yeah. and they're an awful team. Um, the Falcons were right there to yeah. beat the Eagles last year. Well, speaking, They're not speaking, a good team. Speaking, speaking of, of the, the Eagles, Eagles... Well, they've got some problems, too, now. Yeah, I, they're I probably was, not going to make the playoffs. What, what are your odds on that? About uh, we, we 15%, show, 20%? Yeah, we show them 18% to make the playoffs. They, they, they've they obviously ceded the East to the Cowboys with the loss last weekend, but they're still in the hunt well, for the playoffs. You know what their biggest problem is? It's not so much that they're 6-7, and seven, although that's a problem, because Minnesota's only 6-6-1. Six, six and one. They're at the Rams this week. Yeah. Now... If they happen to beat the Rams, it's Sunday night's Rams game. Rams are looking a little bit more beatable no, no, no. than they used to be. I'm just saying, be. they got roughed up by the Bears, 15-6. to 6. Yeah. If the Eagles were to go there and beat the Rams, you would see that 18% shoot up. That's the reason it's at 18%, because a loss to the Rams essentially eliminates them. Yeah, they have but to kind of win out. They, they basically need to win out, and it's going to be very difficult for them to win Given out. at Rams. Because they also play the Texans, I think, still to come. I mean, their schedule it's still not to come is, is very difficult. Not so, easy so, at all. So just to round that out, the Rufus, my partner, on Massapee Body had some notes out yesterday on Twitter, and he looked at the NFC. Said, "Look, basically this thing is set. And division winners are set. Seattle's got the top wild card. Same thing in the AFC, by the way. The top wild card set with the Chargers. So the drama is on the second wild card. Minnesota. Our models are showing Minnesota sixty three percent chance to take that last wild card spot. Philadelphia second, second most likely to get the second spot, but." It's only at eighteen percent. I think it's primarily because of that schedule. I mean, and they're I, like a nine point underdog to the. And Rams. this is really kind of. I, this is why. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I guess. I guess we just did this manually, like ten, ten years ago, before you know everybody had a playoff simulator where you could simulate like a hundred thousand, you know, scenarios or whatever. I think we just probably didn't do a good job evaluating this. I, in football, you very much ha- you can't just kind of go by record and, and and just sort of project linearly out or something because like of that the because there's such a difference yeah. in strength of schedule. And I, I think this is really where simulators shine is that they can take that into advantage and they can take into account the sort of. Doing it manually, it's hard to take into account sort of the connections between these. Are you games. talking about like, preseason you know, simulation? No, within no. season, like at a simulation point, right, point right now. Yeah. The clarification: that there's not, there are not big differences in strength of schedule in the NFL, for, especially for a college football fan. When anybody in the NFL starts whinging about strength of schedule Very differences, it's like, come on! But what does happen is that. With three games left, of course, huge difference. Yeah, midseason, huge difference. While we're on the NFL, I wanted to bring up something else that's interesting. I think everybody knows I'm still in. By the way, I'm still in my eliminator pool. Oh man, there's only 19 of us left out of out of. There were 850 to start, but I want to say something else. If I asked you, I think Cade, you probably know the exact number, but roughly, if you just had to pick a game, not against the spread, just pick the winner of a game. What are the odds someone can pick a winner in the NFL? Just you, it's not against the spread. Just you have to pick the winner of a game. Yeah, of, the, of your choice of games. I mean, no, yeah, you can pick any game you want, 
What's the probability you will pick? A, no, no. Actually, sorry, it's a different question. I'm asking <laughs> you to pick the winner in of any game. Games. In any game, you pick a. I give you oh, a random any game. game. I give you a random game. Those are different things. I know. What's the probability? <laughs> Probably about sixty percent. Okay, it's better than that. It's better than that. But it's but less. Do you than think, you think it's, it's right? It's, it's right. So it's, some of the games are eighty at the well, best, and some of them are. So 50%. let me just say why I'm, I'm bringing this up. I, I would have guessed low seventies. No, it's actually in the mid sixties. Mid sixties. But okay. but let me just say why that's interesting. So I took the results of our eliminator pool and just 10 seconds of algebra. You can solve for what the inferred probability is that people are able to pick, given how many people are left, what's the inferred probability uh, you can pick a game? And this is, I love the law of, you know, I don't know if it's a law of large number kind of thing, but we're picking lots and lots and lots of games. You have hundreds and hundreds of people picking lots and lots of games. The number that comes out inferred, 0. 0.657. Okay. So well, why do you think this, that's the right answer? Just been no, no, from I, the pool. it's the empirical data. I'm saying I compared yeah. the picks. Like us, 850 people picking games this season have done no worse and yeah. no better than what the historical average is of picking games. I'm saying this is just a yeah. microcosm yeah. of we're just a large, a random sample of guys or girls picking games, and we've done no better or worse than yeah. the population. Of course, that and you know you would expect them to do a little bit better than the than the average population. But it just shows you how difficult this thing is. Essentially, mm-hmm. in the the college number would be higher. And where I was coming from, I don't I don't have a pool to work with the data, but you see a lot of people pick. Against you know just straight up they they, and they they track the record and what you see routinely are these numbers in the college you see like low seventies or whatever just because that's just the nature. In the pros, it's mid sixties. Yeah. Wait, can I ask it just a, this? One of the rules of elimination is you can't pick a team twice, isn't that? That is correct. Right, so that allows you that forces you to move from team to team, and that and may co- lower. causes the distribution and to may, be complete. That's good point. So good point. I cannot pick the same team no. more than once, which has a huge impact, especially as we're later on in the season where, you know, this week I'm literally thinking of picking the Falcons because the Falcons are at home against the Cardinals. And oh, that's a good pick. Yeah, well, that's who I got left. So what, is it go into the, and it doesn't go into the playoffs. It's just the regular season. Just the regular so, season. Yeah, what are your choices you, now we can kind of get our head around it without running a simulation or something. Like, what are you down to? Who, who do you have to like abandon or keep? Or you know, what do you? Well, I, here's the other problem: um, only three people get paid, and there's the tiebreaker. Not this is not an unreasonable tiebreaker. Is you sum up the wins of the teams that you picked. More and, is worse. Yeah, the, yeah. the lower the base. I'm unfortunately not good. So I'm literally the last of the people on this tiebreaker. So now I'm now at the point of the season. I've been having a debate. My friend Steve Siegel and I are sharing this pick. I now have it's no debate anymore. I have to go for high risk. So, like for example, pick teams that other other people aren't going to pick. Not just that. Pick I bad have to pick, teams. Pick bad teams because I need bad. to lower my win you need number. To pick bad so, teams playing even worse. Teams. So there's well, only eight <laughs> left. Why do you think they might? You, well, why don't you try to win? Nineteen, 19. Oh, 19 left. No, okay. no, no, no. The math for ni- nineteen seems like well, that's not that many. But then all, there's only three weeks left. Do you know what their other choices? What, what they what they will choose? If you knew so here's that, the answer. Be... I don't know what they'll choose, but I know what they've picked. So yeah. I okay. do know what games. Yeah. I know what teams they have left. So you're right, kid. My strategy will be some combination of which ones they can't pick and yeah. hope for a major upset and if given an indifferent curve or a different set of teams I'm picking the one with the least number of wins. Not even so indifference. Kinda, You've got to trade that off. I Especially with that tiebreaker and I mean the implementation is not easy but the optimal strategy I always sort of take with these survival pools and by the way I got knocked out in like week three so, so this, optimal this is optimal is. I wonder. You mean, um, you mean, you mean well, your I, strategy. Well let me t- give you the strategy and then the fallacy of it. 
um, is um, you just – it's not about figuring out which teams are good and picking them. It's about figuring out which teams are bad and picking against them. You always want to go – Agreed. – with – isolating sort of a, media, a decent team against a bad team is the, the way you should say, be picking survivors. Why, why is that? Yeah. Well, beca- well, because the bad teams play across the spectrum of teams, right? You know, like if, if take Cleveland last year, for example, or something like that, you can always pick against oh, Cleveland because you, you yeah. never... pick against you, them over and over you again. You can keep picking against Cleveland over and over and over again, and you can even pick sort of... You, you again, don't have to pick good teams against Cleveland. You can pick average we teams about against Cleveland. We talked about earlier in the Moneyball season. Remember, this is a historically bad year in the sense of Oakland's a bad team. San Francisco's a bad team. The Bills have been a reasonably bad team. The Jets have been a bad team. There's been a lot of bad teams that's enabled you to shuffle amongst bad teams using Shane's theory. Is it really historical? It is. In terms of the number, like there's just so many teams that are like that were projected with maybe four wins or less. But let me say huh. the following. I didn't realize it was there's kind been, of There's been upsets this year, and that's the thing. Like yeah. The reason Shane may have been eliminated, <clears throat> I told you guys, one game eliminated half the pool, which is your Buffalo fa- Bills yeah. beat the Vikings. That, that was the team that got Buffalo me. Was, that was the team that got me. Got, literally half got of our me. pool that's got eliminated awesome. in one yeah, game. You know, so I've listened to you guys describe this, and, I, and, and uh, Shane alerted me to this idea you can always pick the bad team yeah. and, against uh, the bad uh, and, team. But the problem is, is I don't think you're, 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 you're looking at the average of the success in your pool as an estimate of what you start, started this conversation in. That's going to be much higher. The .657, which is the average success in your pool, I think that's going to be a higher, a high estimate than the problem which you started, which is which is the probability of, of winning if you randomly pick a game. So why is that? Because of the, I mean, people are being smart. They're going to pick. They're going to, well, for example, it, well, it, select. It's, it's, oh no, no, that's my point, Adi. That's my point. Yeah. Is that even you would think under self selection, I get to. Pick, I don't have to pick every game. I just have to pick a random game. Right. I'm going to do better. So point six five seven is the no, upper no, no, bound I, on I'm that. Problem. I'm with you. That's my point. My point is people, even given they only have to pick one and they get mm-hmm. to select which one, they haven't done better than average. Right. Okay. That's my point. So I have two questions about these eliminatory pools that I think are kind of general about analysis. One is, are you running a model, Eric? I would think you would model the heck out of this thing in order to at least inform your decision. So what I've been using is I've been looking at Massey Peabody every single week. I've been looking at the spreads implied by Massey Peabody. I've been forming a set of what I call an indifferent set, which is, you're right, maybe Massey Peabody says one should be eight and a half, another should be seven and a half, but those aren't that different. I look at that pool of games, and then... There's no math after that. After that, I use a baseline to come to a considerate, a mathematical model to come to a consideration set of games, and then I'm picking from that set. What I'm surprised you're not talking about. I I expected you to be forecasting into the future. Like if you if you use, you know, the Pats this week, you can't use them in the future week. So is there any kind of planning? And and that was going to be my next question. I wish I had done that, and I wouldn't be stuck in last place. But you know what? I might not be alive anymore. Well, this is the trade-off because there's no right answer there. You have to have some time discounting preference. Or I had a debate. This so I, I had a de- debate with my friend Steve again three weeks ago. I said, Steve, I've done the math. I don't think we can win tiebreakers. And his debate was, I've been in these pools, Eric, for twenty years. You just got to survive. A lot more people are going to lose than you think are going to lose. Right? Because you don't know what what they have left. So you, correct. You play choices. myopically. You don't, and so you don't try we to, you don't played myopically. But I wanted three weeks ago. I wanted to start picking bad teams. 
that I thought would beat other bad teams, as yeah. Shane said. And I, but he said, no, we've got to just pick winners. And we right, we picked winners, but now I don't think we can win, actually. Right. All right, so this is Wharton Moneyball. You guys can give us a shout, one eight four four wharton one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Got the whole crew in here this morning. This is Cade with my faculty buddies and cl- collaborators here on Wharton Moneyball, Eric, Shane, and Adi. What else besides the NFL? Well, that was go- all because of the Miami. Well, hold we- on, hold on. We have to say something about Penn Villanova. That's what that's what's I was going to be next. That was going to be next. So let me, let me, I didn't watch the game, and Eric, you listened to it, but and I haven't been to a college basketball game in a while. And what struck me is the Ivy League looks good. Yes. I mean, not just good. They really look like a very strong team. Now, obviously, they're not as good as Villanova. They did beat them in one game. They're not going to be a top 25 teams going forward. I wouldn't re- Oh, you're looking at me like maybe they <laughs> you are. Know, why do you know? Why do you say that? Uh, okay, I dismiss it so clearly. I, I did, I, you're right. But so, 10 could get priors, ranked priors, this year. Priors. Priors. So, priors. Let's set it but what struck me as amazing is that how is it that the Ivy League is able to put together a super competitive well, team the, like this? He was in the NCAA's last year. Oh, being and in they the NCAA. Okay. No, they, they did okay. They, they, mm-hmm. did, they lost, but they lost close in the first round. But let's set it real quickly. This was at the Palestra, so just, you know, whatever that is, half a mile that way, three quarters of a mile that way. Crazy home field events. In, in a great stadium. They won by three. Villanova is, you know, 19 or so in the country, but they haven't beaten Villanova in 13 or 14 years. No, more than that. The last they time they beat Villanova was in 2002. But they haven't beat a ranked Villanova in mm-hmm. 30 years, 1988. So big win! I could hear I could hear the people leaving the Palestra from the other side of the river last night. We, I need. To I have two to sons that were there and stormed the court. Really? That, wow. yeah, I, I, on ESPN, I hit super slow motion and I could see them in the picture of the people that had swarmed the court. <laughs> That's pretty fantastic. I texted my sons, "Are you guys seeing this?" And like they're like. Dad, we're actually on the court right now. <laughs> That's good fun. So I saw a little bit of a previous game. They knocked somebody off. They knocked. A they beat Miami. Miami. So that, and and they by the, that was their first. Threes, that was their threes. first win against a Power Five school since 2002 as well. So the, just to show you, Penn had not yeah. beaten a Power. So now they've beaten two Power. That's why I'm saying, Audie, they actually have an interesting game coming up. They're at New Mexico this week on Saturday, which is another Power Five game. If Penn were to win that game, it's not obvious to me. And then let's say they become undefeated in the Ivies. Could they be? Could a twenty and two Penn team be ranked twenty third or twenty fourth in the nation by the end of the season? Sure. Yeah, they could. Absolutely. So let me argue, ask you a question: How is it possible that an Ivy League team, without the recruiting benefits, of, can't give scholarships? Uh, can't exactly. How do they manage to induce great great players tell, to come here, me, or do they me. create them? It's a good question. So let me just say. Um, this is the same way. I don't know if this is going to answer you, but we're a statistics, sports, and business show. Let me tell you how we recruit at Wharton sometimes. Good way to think about it for basketball. There are always people that are underplaced. For example, there's a guy right now on Yale. I believe his last name is Oni or Ono, where the guy literally, until he until last year, he had not really played a lot of basketball. He got invited to one of these shows, and now they're projecting him as a first-round pick, and the guy's actually at Yale. Yale just played Duke last Saturday. I watched the game. Yale was leading with 15 minutes left in the game. Hmm. This guy was, and remember, this is Duke, Zeon Williamson, or the big hype. This guy, you could argue, was the best player on the court. Mm-hmm. Now, how did Yale Good get him? Lord. Because he was not one of these blue-chip recruits and scouts, so what you do if you're Penn, if you're the Ivy League, is you recruit people based on Lifetime value. You will always have your Ivy League education. You recruit people. You have to look for people that aren't being recruited by these that the other schools won't even go after. So, so you're saying when he's not a, a blue chip recruit, which means he wasn't heading to a top twenty five program. That is correct. But there's the next twenty five. 
Presumably, he was was on that list. I know, but, or was but he then, really now, that far? now you've got a real trade off. Now yeah. you've got a trade off. Now you've got Once an you're opportunity. Down to the age twenty five, then maybe does. you can argue for an Ivy League education uh-huh. being. But it has to be more than just putting together a bunch of guys who can't quite make top twenty five, but they value your your education. It has to be a system thing as well, right? Or like getting the right guys together, playing a certain scheme, developing them, and have the training. Ways. Do we have the facilities here and the coaching and the the athletic? Um, our, environment. Our, our coach well, is very highly say, regarded. I, I, we know he's analytics savvy. We've and, had him in this studio talking analytics. Yeah, before. Steve yeah. Donahue's a great coach. Um, people forget he took Cornell to the f- first time they had maybe ever been to the Ivy League tournament. They won a game in the Ivy League tournament. And so this is an accomplished coach. And But I agree with Cade. I think it's not. It can't just be about they can find people. Other people can't. What it probably also shows, Adi, is that the pool is getting deeper in basketball. Is that no? no why would that be other than shooting? Is there a reason besides? I mean, shooting is, that, is that, you know, can you explain this to me? What do you mean by when you say other than shooting? Is it because shooting well, no, is I mean, becoming so much more of a, an important? No, it's your th- remember our theorem when you and I talked together. Three is worth more than two. <laughs> yes, right. And so, so but what has to do with, with, well, with depth of talent? I'm going to so, wait to see the proof on that one. <laughs> yeah. So you go back. You, what the, the what's the stat? Like the first year, the NBA had a three point line. The LA Lakers won the championship, and they shot. They made like. 14 three-pointers all season. Right. So last year, you know, I don't you know, whatever the number is now, it's grown dramatically. And one of the, obviously this, the change in strategy with, you know, you're either at the bucket or at the three-point So this three opens up the but, but, recruiting but, but, pool? Is that well, what, what I'm saying is that eventually the player development catches up with the change in strategy. People focus more on shooting those three-point shots, and they get better at it over time. And so you've got a deeper pool for people who can provide this particular source of offense, which has become right. more valuable over time. I think I, for, I, for, for, it's uh, also a little bit more uncorrelated with extreme physical characteristics. Oh, that's yeah. the so that's point why. I was trying to yeah. make, is that mm-hmm. you can, you know, if if any of us, I'm not saying, if not, I don't mean against, not I don't me. mean guarded, I don't mean guarded, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you know, I played a lot of basketball. If I went out and shot a thousand shots a day, unguarded, unguarded, I said, I could become a thirty-five to forty percent three-point shooter. Sure, with, with the techniques that no, they offer you for training and everything else, and yeah. training techniques. So that's Cade's point, which is the talent pool of people that can shoot the three is growing dramatically. That's the way the game is moving as well. And so you don't need people. Yeah, right. I can't score near the hoop, but you don't want me to score near the hoop anyway. <laughs> yeah, you don't want me to do that. So you know, there, there's also this challenge Penn has and other and other Ivies and, and not just Ivies on admission standards. So it's not that anybody can get in here. Nope. There is a higher bar. We're going to have, by the way, at nine o'clock, a current Wharton MBA who played NFL but also played college at Stanford. Your old school, Audie played college at he Stanford. Did. Stanford has a similar problem recruiting in football. They have probably the highest admission standards in B in FBS. Probably maybe all of Division One, but. Um, they, uh, it's many players who want to go there can't get in, and so other teams are kind of waiting for them to not get Let in. Let me just make one comment about the game last night. The, the, what shocked me also is, do you guys know what the line was going into the game? And Great question. I do know. Nine points, I thought. No, it was, it was seven. Yeah. seven. I was shocked, number one, it was that low. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second is, let's be clear about how also Ivy League schools do it. I'm, you know, my son plays a varsity sport here at Penn, squash. Here's how you do it. You expand the size of the team... And it's the average score that matters. So what happens is you get lots of people. And I saw the recruiting process with my son and some of his friends. I bring in four or five really star students who are on the team but aren't going to play. And so the NCAA standards don't have to do with each individual player has to meet a criterion. There are no a, limits on team size. 
There are limits on team size, but I'm saying you can bring in just, people. The bottom to, of the end of your bench is not going to so play anyway. Oh, they amazing. actually recruit yeah. based on GPA and test score at the mar- right at the margin of the last couple people that allows them but to do it in a more Why? balanced I know way. The, I, I think used to have a minimum academic standard for every player. It is, of course, there is. No, no, you're saying while they're here, they have a minimum GPA. No, 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 GPA. for admissions as well. They might, but they I'm just... They do, because, I mean, in, particularly in football, there's a minimum standard you have to meet, and it just you have to meet it, otherwise you can't... Yeah. They won't accept But the, there sounds like there's also a standard on average, yes. in addition to minimum, and there's degrees of freedom right. to fudge around that standard on average. Well, it's not what fudge around saying. an average. Well, I mean, it's an it's, average. You just bring in some people that are going to be I mean, recruited to bring up the... I, I know that the it, Ivy League... It sounds a little like a fudging to me, of sorts. I, I know the Ivy League does, there's it, does a it. There's a couple things in getting into the Ivy uh-huh. League which are interesting. For example, the coaches get protected admission spots. So if you are one of those uh, protected admissions, you can essentially offer admissions to an athlete in junior year and say, congratulations, Correct. you know, it's, it's, it's just a formality as long as you meet that minimum SAT or GPA standard, which isn't that high, by the way. And, it's, and usually you can project that pretty well. The gamesmanship is when they have someone who is good enough to get in on their own. And they're also terrific athletes and, and can play on the team. What they don't want to do is give that person a project a protected spot because they yeah. can give it to somebody else. Yeah, for sure. yeah. um, and then they can get that one, that person in anyway because for they're sure. strong enough um, individual uh, on their on their uh, on their academic side. It is a bit of a game because you can protect them and as long and the, and the admissions office will give them preference because they're elite athletes. Um, but they won't they won't they won't be a protected spot. Clarifying question. The Ivy League schools don't provide scholarships that to their correct. athletes, right? No. This is the real right. that, challenge they for cannot. these guys. You talk to these coaches, and I mean, it's just they, it's so heartbreaking for these guys because a, a great player can change their system. No. I know we were recruiting a, a, a internationally known tennis player last year, and it would have really now. What of course has helped though for a school like Penn, same is true of many of the Ivies, is we have need blind admissions now. So. If you happen to be a, a great athlete and you come from low socioeconomic status, you will get a full scholarship anyway. This is true of whether you're an athlete or non. So the one thing the Ivy League started about 10 years ago, because you know endowments have gone up, is if you're, again, of low socioeconomic status. It's not even and that you low, get, by the way. I know. The, the, the amounts get, are huge. It's huge. Yeah. You get into Penn, you'll go for free anyway. So that's helped. I thought you said need blind. Need blind. Need blind admissions. Admissions. But, but, uh, they admit you without seeing your financial statement and history. And then, in some sense, so they don't know. It's not like there's a budget that they give to people. Every They accept people based on their qualifications. And then, in some sense, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You open up the curtain and say, how much money do we now have to pay out after admissions is done? Not They cannot here, take it into question, account. Which Eric. means, again, if you're admitted to Penn and you're an athlete and you happen to come from low socioeconomic status, besides that your economic status cannot be taken into account – Pen eliminated loans. You don't get loans. You go for free. Well, this is this that was a necessary piece that was missing. Yeah. So you're saying they don't consider it up front, and then automatically, correct? Whatever you need is sorry. They, 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 they give you what to you be need. a loan program. They yeah. give you what you need, and it's a lot. So if you look at the Wall Street Journal ranking of schools, they'll list how much the average. Uh, what the average tuition payment is for a student. Now, that's a mixed bag because some are paying zero and some are paying full price. But the average amount at Penn is 21000 mm-hmm. Incredibly mm-hmm. low, mm-hmm. right around 20000 mm-hmm. relative to the $50,000 actual bill, Correct. which yep. uh, is the full price. So, by the way, I, I, <laughs> I dug, know it well. <laughs> yeah, sure did. I dug up the power ranking on our basketball team, the Pennsylvania basketball team. So I went to ESPN. They have a, they have a BP. After last night's game? Uh, I don't know how quickly they updated. Let me just tell okay. you. The bat, they have BPI, which is the basketball analog to FPI, 
which is a great system. I know a lot about FPI. I can't vouch for a BPI, but it came out of the same group, and it's a solid group, so it's probably a it's decent It's got two good go. letters in it. That's right. Pennsylvania is number 75. So uh, I had to dig a few pages down to get there, but, you know, there are 200-and-something D1 basketball And where's programs. Villanova? Well, don't make me go digging. 16, I would guess. There, there were 17. Their ranking yeah. was 17, but there's probably somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, but what, what I always try to do is 16. 16. 16. Yeah. Okay. What's also interesting is who's around 75, too. That will that, be interesting to see. That's Colorado was down there. There, okay. are, some, there are some Power 5. Uh, do they say Power 5 in basketball? I think they, they do. do. All right. All right, fellas. That's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports athletics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane, Adi, Eric. You can join the conversation. Give us a ring, one eight four four wharton one 942 7866 or email us, businessradio at com. If it's not 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern on a Wednesday, it's a replay. It's an easy way to reach out to us if you're hearing a replay. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also hit us on... Twitter, at WMoneyBall is our handle, at WMoneyBall. We follow the world of sports analytics up there. In the next half hour, our first guest for the week, Ravi Ramaneni. Ravi is the director of soccer analytics for the Seattle Sounders in MLS. Seattle Sounders FC. He's the architect of the analytics platform that the coaching staff uses out there. Ravi's got an interesting background. We always need to learn a little bit more about soccer analytics. So very glad to have Ravi. Ravi, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, guys. How are we're, you? We're we're good. We're good. Or, or where are you calling in from? Uh, Seattle. Oh my goodness! We're always so thankful when you guys get up and make the call. So it's five thirty out there. Uh, is this your usual get up time, or are you doing us a favor this morning? No, I get up early. Uh, I think uh, if you think about it, like most of the support staff for for professional teams generally tend to wake up early because our day starts pretty early, even though it's off-season for us now. So I was about to of, say, when do you take a break? The, the, we know the, the title game, you guys weren't in it this year, but the title game was just this past weekend, right? So we're, we're just kind of past it. So what, what's, the, what's the rhythm like for you right now? Yeah, well, right now is more it's off-season in MLS is little different is that it's just the free agency and all that uh all we have a little bit of drafts that kick off right away not not the uh college draft but there are drafts where players are recycled i mean we don't have like a full free agency so it's um so players that that don't qualify for free agency are go through a different draft system and so we're getting ready for those right now so it's a very compressed week right after the mls cup um, where we have a lot of the um, lot of the these drafts where you know we can get some players from other teams, got it. some trades. So we're working on those right now. So and, Ra- um, Robbie, this this the recycled players. That's a funny term. The, the uh, we, we have a recycled market. We have a recycled market for faculty. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. That's true. Uh, Robbie, uh, t- the the before we get into the details of some of the soccer um, and and we want to hear about personnel. But we want to get a little sense of your background because I think it's not very typical in, unless it's different in soccer. But before you before you came to the team, you worked with Microsoft. Is that right? Yeah. So other than being in the same neck of the woods, what is the connection between your work at Seattle with the, with the Sounders and with Microsoft? Well, I think I think the biggest connection is I'm in the same place, but 
my background, as you said, like computer science and electronics um, and math. So um, I've always liked sport, um, mostly soccer and cricket coming from India. And so I always had this thing of like, not a dream, but like, ah, it would be great to work in sports, but I never knew how, mm-hmm. how I get into it because I didn't have any background. Mm-hmm. And initially I started writing writing blogs just about match reports and stuff, not nothing related to analytics or data, just more about watching the game, writing about it um, for a Spanish league. Um, and it was like... Oh, 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 hold time. on, you were, you were blogging about a Spanish league? Yeah, so that's my favorite football league or okay. soccer league. So, um, and, and there were not many people writing about it, so it was it was easier one to do. And, you know, so, um, yeah, but... But, but then that was nothing about analytics. But I think as my as I was towards the end of my time at Microsoft, um, I was um, like um, I was always looking for other opportunities of how to get into sport. And one of the things was I um, um, I was I went to this Lone Sports Analytics Conference once, like 2012, I think. Um, and and I saw a lot of people and met a lot of people that are a little bit ahead of me in the game and in terms of writing stuff on there in the web. So there is no like, uh, there is no fixed path to this. It's always like you have to make your own path somewhat. Um, yeah. At least, at, at least it was in 2012. So I started writing an analytics blog of looking at numbers, you know, just look at public number available publicly, try to write something and, you know, put something out there. And Robbie, my, let me let me interrupt real quick. So you were still writing about La Liga, the and but you just you shifted for, into more analytics format. Is that right? Yeah. The, yeah. At this point, I shifted to more general analytics for soccer, not just La Liga. It and, was more. Oh, OK. Yeah. And it was more about like looking at, you know, go to this website called Transfermark, which has a lot of um, the information of how much a player is sold for for years and years, for decades, and what is the current value of the player according to their algorithms. So I would just get all those numbers and try to project something or try to um, look at which team is doing an efficient job of using money or not. Um, so, Robbie, let me, again, let me jump in real quickly. The one, I want, it sounded like the MIT conference you went to that year was a, was a pivotal thing. Is that right? It's kind of neat if the conference was an inflection point for you. Yeah, it is. It is because I think, you know, so there's a small backstory to it. It's like then I was, while I was working at Microsoft, I have this this friend, um, Sarah Rudd, who is now my wife. So she was further ahead into the soccer analytics sphere in terms Uh of she had her own blog writing about analytics. Okay. And so we met that and she asked me, oh, let's go to the conference and, and, uh, and see if you, if you find something interesting. And and then so I went to the conference and you know definitely was a big inflection point. Then I when I came back I started writing a blog about soccer analytics. So and, you got you and, got both a job and a wife out of the conference. Is that what you're telling us? Yes, that's, that's a real selling point for this <laughs> thing. Conference. We need to tell Daryl Morey about that. Just, justifies those, justifies those uh, fees. Those that, conference that, fees. Right. We were just talking about how expensive the tickets are, Robbie. Robbie, oh, yeah. uh, but but also you're not you're not just a you know you've got some tools to work with when you're doing these analytics. So can you give us some sense? You you have an engineering degree from Clemson, which is a great engineering school. Um, what tools are you using when you start applying you know uh, analytics to these transfer prices? Yeah, so I mean, at the time, it was more, a lot simpler, simple correlations, and you know, just using Excel, and you know, that was then. 
But my background, you know, at Microsoft, I worked towards like the last few years, I worked for Bing, uh, the search engine. So I used to do a lot of analysis of uh, user behavior, like how, so when you go to a search page, um, how much time you spend on the search page and what link you click, whether you click the first link or the second link, or do you do people normally click a picture or like something that is written in a 12 font instead of a 10 font? Okay, hold on, Ravi. This is not sounding like advanced. This is, this is, what is hard about this? So, so I'm just saying is that the amount of data that you have to process, so those are the skills I picked up there, that mm-hmm. how do you process? It's like high volume. Data. Okay. High volume. Yeah, okay. we used to collect terabytes of data every day. Okay. Um, and, and so, so I, so those are the skills that I was building on, which I did not know that would help me in sport, but eventually those are the ones that got me through. And, you know, I, that those are the ones that set me apart. And, and then I was able to use them, uh, in soccer analytics and Rob, it's more, sorry. I mean, this is a little bit technical, but I think it's a, it's a relevant question these days. You're the second person I've heard t- say in the last week or so that working with high volume data is a is a is a unique skill and a valuable skill in sports analytics, like t- terabyte level data. Can you give us some sense of what's involved with that? As a, I, I don't work with terabyte levels of data, but it's interesting to me that it's it's not only valuable, but it's but it's but it's a specialized skill. Like there are unique things up there that you're doing because I know that other teams and other sports are also you know, vetting, hiring candidates on exactly that criteria. Yeah, so the, I think the challenge is that first thing is you can't put this amount of data into an Excel spreadsheet, just to give a simple example to, mm-hmm. to do some analysis, because Excel is very powerful, but it doesn't do well with, you know, um, millions no. and millions yes. of rows of data. Right. So, um, so I think first of all is how do you manage the data, where you store it, and how you can... Um, within few seconds or, or even, you know, like tenths of a second, produce a visualization or, yep. or, or process the data and show it, to a, show it to a decision maker like a coach or a, or a GM. Um, or in general, like the processing, the, the, all these skills, I, th- I think it's more you have to write, um, you have to work in a certain programming language, use a certain type of database, um, and, and, and have all these, you know, infrastructure pieces built okay. or have ability to work with those infrastructure. Yep. So I think those are the skills that, that, that you tend to normally need in, a, in like a software job, like when you're working in a credit card company, you're, you're working with transaction data or in a search company where you're working with query data, like, like, like the search companies collect tons of data for every time you open a, open a Google search, they probably collect about you know a few thousand pieces of data of of every time you open the page. Remarkable. So all those, yeah, and so all those is like so 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 to process all that you you def, as as I explained like you need certain softwares or certain skills in certain languages and certain databases. So Robbie, so all that yeah, Robbie, this is Eric Bradlow. I wanted to build on what you're saying, and you when you talked about your background being both in computer science and math. We always like to talk to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball about the skills they should have to go into these types of jobs. Would you agree that, you know, it's great to know math, it's great to know statistics, but in today's world, someone that has both computer science and math skills will have a huge leg up based on what Kate is describing, which is the ability to program in various languages and potentially have a background that allows them to handle large amounts of data? Totally agree. 
So we're talking to Ravi Ramanani. He is the director of soccer analytics at the Seattle Sounders soccer team out there. How long have you been in that position, Ravi? This is, I just finished six seasons. So I started at the beginning of 2013. So it feels like in those, in those years, I mean, soccer analytics is so new. Mm-hmm. You're seeing, in some sense, the creation of a whole new field. Is that, is that fair? And how, how would you characterize where soccer analytics is right now? Um, I think they are. Um, so obviously, compared to when I started, I think at the time it was a lot more um, just simple data, discrete type of analysis where you look at, oh, look at this correlation, this correlates goal scoring, this correlates to conceding goals, you know, like individual events. I think now it's a lot further advanced in the sense we're looking more on a continuous uh, type of thing where like we're looking at how is a person adding value to the overall, you know, objective of winning the game or scoring more goals and so i think there's definitely a more um more data available and more detailed data and i think in the last few years especially last two three years i think there is the um the tracking data has gone sort of mainstream i wouldn't say mainstream yet but in the sense that there is a lot more analysis being done in the in in using tracking data like the sports view data of nba and um, is that, that is that tracking data where you really kind of uh get to is that where these skills that you took from your experience with bing really kind of come into play or were, were you challenged is that the first kind of generation of data where you were kind of challenged in the same way you were challenged at microsoft yes yes i think that's the that's exactly the data where you need those skills. Robert, if you, yeah. this is this is Adi Weiner. Um, I'm very interested in in the next generation of statistics to come to soccer. I mean, it's the field, as Kate mentioned, is, is is blowing wide open right now. But what I'm kind of concerned about is the overemphasis. I mean, not that this is bad for the team side on the tracking data because we don't, as the public, see it, and therefore you're getting all these insights. And and then how are we supposed to know what it means? What's in it for Adi? Yeah, well, what's, what's in, in it for, for the Adi, public? Right? I mean, what? what what is it? What, what's happening on the on the on the statistics side that we can actually digest and say this player, other than goals, which we've had forever, is contributing in this way? And how can I see it? And what statistics are you measuring that you can bring to the to the the fan who would like to digest this information and and become more more of an active participant on the at least on the analytical side? Oh, I, I'll take one step back from tracking data. So what soccer always had is what we call event data. Uh, which would give you, which which is about 2,000 to 2,500 events per game, where you know where a player passed the ball from and where the next player received it, where he took the shot from, and you know which part of the goal the, the shot went in or where the keeper saved. So that data has been there in soccer for a long time. This like, is the XY coordinate system data as well, or just yeah, yeah. this is the XY coordinate mm-hmm. system data. But what it does is only the it will tell you where the ball was touched and what the player did with the ball. But nothing away from the ball, basically. Yeah, it doesn't tell you where the other 21 players are. So, so, but this has been there. This is the widest available data set in soccer. For almost every league in the world, you have a provider doing this type of data. Now, this takes us... This gives a lot of insight to the fans in the sense, right now there are metrics, what we call expected goals, which is, which is very widely used now, even in public... Sorry, even in the mainstream media like BBC in England, and uh, like if you if you watch any MLS broadcast like Fox or ESPN, they always they're always, they're using visuals to show the quality of the chances created. Like expected goals is nothing but when when a player takes a shot, what is the probability that that shot might 
turn into a goal. And so, so this is sort of the metric that's now almost, I would say, very mainstream right now. Everybody talks about it. I think, obviously, there are still people who are skeptics about it, but I think it's a very good metric. I think it, it, is, uh, it has predictive value. Robbie, just so and, I can, this is Eric Brown, just so I can understand the sophistication yeah. of how that's done now, one simple way to do it would just be, which I assume it's much more sophisticated than this to say, I'm making this up, create a bunch of two-foot-by-two-foot two squares along the entire soccer field, look at the mm-hmm. fraction of shots taken from every two-by-two-foot square, and then see what percent score. But now I assume... Besides doing that, now it might be where are the placement of the other players? How fast is the ball coming to the person, etc.? Can you give us a sense of is it more sophisticated than my two foot by two foot square situation? In other words, what are the covariates and other stuff that are brought into the model today? Well, I think well, the models, the most models have. Uh, well, I think you 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 come very, uh, I, I think you come good long distance in terms of with your model, but I think it's more. We, we the way I think the the more sophisticated models work are um, just uh, it's a continuous uh, field of, of points like X Y points not not you don't need to do two by two squares you just get X Y on the field anywhere and then you you build a model for that uh, but you also use things like you know he's shooting with his dominant foot um, is um, like the the angle to the goal obviously those will come with the X Y directly. But for the most part, like this is all done using event data, as I mentioned. So, so that, but but now with tracking data, you can add. Okay, where are the defenders? Right. And where are the you know where is the goalkeeper position with respect to the goal? And you know, and then what is the you know you can approximate in in some tracking systems you can you can know the speed of the ball or you can do a good approximation of it. But I think in some tracking systems it's not quite there yet. But but yes, so we're getting there where it's a lot more contextual, like, okay, not all shots are equal, and not all shots taken from a certain spot are equal. And also, other things are the type of, uh, in soccer, there's, you know, the phase of play, whether it's a counterattack type goal, or whether it's a goal from a set piece, or whether it's a goal um, run of play where there is like a low block defending, or so, so there's like 10, dif- 8 defenders inside the box. So that's a, so you can do a lot more um, sophisticated analysis with the tracking data. Robbie, but, how, how, many, how sophisticated are the teams in MLS? We've got 24 teams in the league. You know, I can t- I can tell you how you know based everyone every team in baseball has an analyst. Every team in basketball has an analyst. Where is it for soccer? MLS in particular. Um, I think <laughs> soccer maybe 70 to 75 percent teams have an analyst. I think. What soccer has always done is is they always have um, had a video analyst, and so it was more like it's not nothing related to statistics, but it's more like cutting video and showing it to players, and then the coaches use that to scout teams and okay. all that. So they, I think almost every team has one of them. Okay. Uh, in terms of pure data analysis and statistics, I think there's probably I don't know, at least fifty percent of the teams have it, and that obviously that it is changing because when I came in, there was literally maybe there's one more team or nobody um right. and but uh, but now i think there's a lot more a lot more teams have a, uh, a data analyst the other thing about um you know the the soccer analytics is that soccer has always been is an interesting sport because 
the on the sports science and fitness side, they've been ahead of many sports. Like they've used GPS right. for more than ten years. Right. They've always used the data. It's just the um, just the game side, tactical, technical analysis side is where I think they are lagging behind NBA, for example, or or baseball, of course. Okay. One last question about the MLS, and and then we're going to have to let you go. Unfortunately, where where is the MLS in, in that kind of player development pipeline in the world? My sense of soccer is that you know there's just these transfers across clubs but really across leagues and there's kind of a hierarchy and a big part of a club's success is their ability to develop players and sell them to teams that are higher in the hierarchy so is that does it work that way for mls as well and and who are the feeders into mls and where do players go from mls well i think what it mls wants to be a big player in that market i think recently the the player uh, alfonso davis canadian player got signed by Bayern munich and uh, i think just yesterday the goalkeeper for the Columbus Crew, Zach Steffen. He's going to be the American national team goalkeeper okay. in the future. Okay. He's got signed by Manchester City. Oh, really? So, wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, although Manchester City has about 70, 75 players on their books, but they do a lot of business in terms of loaning those players out I see. Uh, around the leagues in Europe. Okay. Not all of them make it to the first team. So, okay. Um, so I think MLS wants to be a big player in the market, and 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 they are getting there. I think these are good examples that happened very recently, and uh, and they will also streamline the the academy system at the different clubs. So now everything, I think the idea is to have everybody synced up. All the clubs have academies where they can recruit local kids um, okay. at an early age. And if you see soccer is different from. Like um, other American sports, where uh, like you know, in, if you're at 21, if you're coming out of college, you were probably too late in in soccer. So right. So that's why you like the best pros in the world are pros by they are 16 years old. And this this just highlights the other big challenge in soccer. It's not just figuring out things on the pl- on on the field, but how do you identify talent? You know, years before years. When they're just, these guys are just kids. All right, yeah. Rob, Robbie, really appreciate your being with us. Hey, Tap to Jump, we'll, we'll, we'd love to talk to you more down the road. Wish you the best with the work that you're doing out there. Thanks. Thanks, guys. You bet. Robbie Ramaneni, he is the director of soccer analytics at the Seattle Sounders Football Club, former Microsoft. He's engineer, computer science, mathematician, doing his thing in soccer analytics now. That has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Broadcasting from SiriusXM Business Radio Studios. Maybe this isn't broadcasting. I'm not sure. It probably doesn't count as broadcasting, does it? At any rate, we're here every Wednesday morning. You guys can join the conversation, one 844 Wharton one 942 or email us, at com or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. Pleasure to have Adi in the second hour. The guy's been loafing in the classroom in the second hour yeah, of the semester. Yeah, indeed, loafing away. Just yeah. walk, walks out of here, abandons us halfway through the show all semester long. Although I will say that almost many of my classes have begun with an anecdote shared with my class that, that took place that came here from in the, the studio. Oh, all right, see, well, we're contributing. There you good. go, Shane. That's Look, good. we're doing something in the world. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I, our, our contributions are, are manifest. Uh, there's tons of them, yeah, no, no, no doubt. So we're just on the phone talking soccer analytics with the Seattle Sounders. We have now our second guest. Delighted to welcome 
not just to the show, but into the studio. Eric Lorig. Eric, good morning. Welcome to the show. Morning. Thanks for having me. Just fresh off the plane from L.A., actually. Is that right? Yeah. I thought I thought our students were flying away from here right now, not flying back. Oh, to I, had, I had to right come now. back to take Weiner's test. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I need to construct. So All right. So Eric is an MBA student here at the Wharton School, and he is also a former football player. He played at Stanford in college and went on into six years of NFL four with the Bucks makes our buddy Eric Bradlow very happy and a couple with the New Orleans Saints and we thought it'd be interesting to talk to Eric a little bit about his life in football and especially that intersection between a guy who can play football also walk into the Wharton school and take exams from Ronnie Weiner so that's a unique combination let's get a little more background from you my, my understanding is you played you played lineman in, in college before transitioning to fullback in pros. Is that right? Yeah. So I actually was recruited out of high school to be a tight end. So my first two years at Stanford were spent as a tight end. And then we got Harbaugh on the changeover. And their new defensive unit recruited me over to play defense. They okay. didn't have enough athletes over there. So okay. I said, sure. I didn't know what I was doing anyway. Real quick clarification. <laughs> Stanford usually has, what, like 25, 26 tight ends on their roster at any given time? Yeah, is it's, that t- right? it's tight end you. They like tight ends. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, I remember Harbaugh trying to convince me to stay at tight end. But oh, really? they really didn't have any. We didn't have a lot of athletes on defense at the time. Uh, so I sort of just went along with it. The coaches were competing for you? The head coach lost the the competition for what side of the ball you're on? You know, it was a very competitive environment when we got there. Yeah, even between coaches, that that sort of thing took off really fast. That's fascinating. All yeah. right, so you you come out as a tight end, but you hop over there. Yeah. Um, well, what size were you playing at back then? So at the time, at, at my peak in college as a DN, I was you know almost 6'4". And playing about two seventy five, so I was a big boy. Oh, good lord! Yeah. Okay. What are you down to now, Eric? Now I'm I'm about two fifty, and okay. I was playing my play weight once I got into the NFL was about two sixty. Okay. Yeah. So t- talk about the so I can see a transition from a tight end to a defensive end. That's 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 uh, that's that's. It happens on occasion. It doesn't happen that much, but it happens on occasion. What about the NFL, though? So you come in the NFL, and now they start playing fullback. You go from DN back to the offensive side of the ball. And to, right. and to a, and to a, and how do the NFL teams, how would you say they typically use a fullback? So what happened was, you know, because you, the NFL scouting departments, they, they run so deep, you know, both in money and time. They had been scouting me since I was 18 and, and they scout everyone since they're, you know, get onto the college field. They've taken notes. They know what positions you've played. And if you're making good plays as a young player, they know who you are and watch your growth. So depending on which team was looking at me in the draft, this team in particular, Tampa Bay, Mark Dominic, the GM, you know, he saw me as a guy who was going to come in and play special teams and be a more versatile player, mm-hmm. probably playing in more of a tight end and a fullback role. Mm-hmm. So I got there. You know, they told me, make it on special teams. We'll figure you out as we go. I said, all right, I'll do anything. You know, I'll run <laughs> through a wall. Uh, and that's ended up what happened. The, the first week, I made the team on special teams. Then they threw me over on the tight end side, ran some tight end scout. Then they put me a fullback. Then the next week, I was up starting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and that's that's very typical in the NFL for the sort of uh, a lot of the positions that aren't those featured ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, you're talking about a position that has that gets moved around for a bit. So some tight ends are almost interchangeable with the fullback, and they move them around. They play a little bit of a, a role in the passing. It's interesting game. to hear that because I, I I guess I have not been paying close enough attention to sort of notice that. And perhaps I, I also my, my my team is the Patriots, and they have sort of I, I think they're one of the teams that has more of a devoted fullback that does not actually transition much to tight. End. That's you, right. Can you uh, just elucidate for for us uh, fools out here what exactly the difference between the fullback and the tight end on the on this? You, you, they seem to be somewhat interchangeable. So how would you discreetly define the difference? 
That's exactly right. So the fullback would be more in the, the running back traditional role. So they would be the lead back in front of the running back and might do some of the one-on-one, more man-on-man blocking for the isolated blocks, zone blocks from the backfield. The tight end is going to be on the line of scrimmage. He can also flex out, flex left, flex back, motion. So what I played was this sort of hybrid role. That's what they used to call it, like an H-back, where that role was intended to fool the defense. So the defense is making all these decisions based off of the package that's about to open up on the field. If they see that I'm in the in the eye, right, then they're thinking, oh, they like to run these plays out of eye, but then suddenly you shift out, maybe go down on the line of scrimmage or maybe even out wide, and then then they're a little confused. They right. weren't prepared for that. So, so. The, these roles are, are really about entropy, trying to make it difficult for the opposing team to estimate what did you're you going to do. Did you say entropy? That's I right. did. So explain Another to word our for that audience. would be predictability. <laughs> well, I they, think they, that they people are, would are, understand. So, so yeah. it's, it's, it's basically it's a measure of chaos. So um, yeah. so the idea being is that, that, that you shouldn't know what's going to happen because it could go in any direction. So a very predictable system would be low entropy and a high an unpredictable system would be would be high entropy. So that's just the word for it. So Eric, <laughs> we, could, we, we could stick with predictable. Let me ask you two related questions. One's that's Buccaneer related and then one that's just more general. So obviously the Buccaneers had, we could debate whether he was a Hall of Famer, but Mike Altstadt was on the Buccaneers for a long time. And so when you were drafted by the Buccaneers and then decided to be, you know, they put you in a fullback position. Did it make you feel good that this was a team that was going to utilize you, given their long history of Mike Allstott being on the team and saying, wow, this is a good situation for me? Yes, certainly. I was excited about it because, you know, at the time, the common common conception is that the fullbacks are dead, but it's just not true. You know, if you look at the, the stats or how they're using players, the, the fullback position is alive, especially at the Super Bowl level. You see teams at the Super Bowl, for the most part, you know, they have live fullbacks. So when I got there, I was happy to do that. And even though Mike and I are a little bit different in that he was a tradition, he was a good running back. Yes, I'm he was. sorry. He was a great running great back. Great running back. I was Had a thousand yard season. <laughs> yeah. I wish I was like that. To be honest, I wasn't very natural from the running back position with the ball, but I would do more of the short yardage passing and a lot of the blocking. Well, I was going to ask you that. Back to Adi's question about entropy or adding uncertainty. Do you think the fact that obviously they scouted you, other teams scouted you, they knew that you were a tight end, therefore they're like, well, Eric Lorg's got to be able to catch the ball. Therefore, that added a dimension to your game because now you're not just a fullback that's going to block, but they kind of know Tampa Bay could actually throw him the football, and he may actually catch it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish they believed that even more once I was actually doing it. But I think it did help me make the team initially and show the versatility because when you're not in one of those prime positions, yeah, you're trying to do everything, and you just want to be good at it. So we're talking to Eric Lorig. Eric is in studio with us this morning. He's an NBA student here at Wharton, former NFL fullback and tight end, after playing DE, defensive end, with the Stanford Cardinal in college. Eric, you were a seventh-round draft pick. Seventh-round draft picks aren't an expectation looking at a six-year NFL career. So what was it that allowed you to be that successful, kind of outperforming your expectation coming out of college? Yeah, I think that's true. That that seventh round, you might as well be undrafted. Uh, it's nice to have that seventh round label, but at that point, you're there to do everything you possibly can. And what I mean by that is being able to play on all three phases, not just one. So you know, those upper tier players, they're drafted to to do one thing extremely well. Once you get to that bottom, you got to figure out how to you know add value, as mm-hmm. we like to say around here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at that point. They told me you got to make all four phases of the special teams units. Then you got to figure out a role on offense. 
you know, in my first couple of weeks, I was actually playing defense, playing offense, and okay. this was in practice, and then playing the special teams on the games. Okay. And then suddenly it just shifted over to just trying to do everything on offense, you know, okay. catch, block, special teams. But, the, the, but just hearing you talk about that, I'm thought, I think of Taysom Hill with the Saints right now. Yeah, so that's he right. A little more of a skilled player in college, but mm-hmm. he's he wasn't an obvious NFL quarterback. You know clearly, but he's just figuring out ways to add value. Blocking punts now. Yeah, he's returning punts. Returning punts. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So, so, but so, so versatility is one. Yeah. And being willing to do all those things that are required to to provide value in different in different roles. But what else? What? How? Why would you? What would you say separated you from others who tried to do such a thing? Was it? Is it athletic ability, or was it? Something else that you managed to do? Yeah, how great an athlete were you? I mean, could you run a? I'm making it up. Could you run a four seven forty? I mean, what was your? Yeah, yes. yeah. No, okay. I think that's it's a good question. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie here. Yeah, you have to have a baseline of of you know upper level athletic. Ability. We are talking about the NFL. We're not talking about <laughs> Penn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it, that's no got to be there. <laughs> and then I, I think what really defines it is, is people that can really commit to the to the system to being systematic about their work. When, and just what being that very professional. Like? That means having a daily, really an hourly dedication to to perfection, and just it's seeking the perfection and keeping away from the mean, regressing to the mean. You want to okay, not give, regress. You know, walk us through a little bit of one of these days, whether it's okay. in season or off season, a day that you think you were doing something that helped keep you in the NFL for six years. It maybe some other folks. Can, can I just doing. get a little context before? Uh, Cade mentioned that six years is an extreme event for a seventh round for any pick. NFL player. But I think it's for any. Can you? How many standard deviations is it? We'll, we'll put it. Make a lesson out of this. The mean so is three what and is a half. The mean? Well, most seventh round picks don't don't, don't even play. Don't but even the mean play. the mean is three and a half for any player for yeah. any player. So and what's this? What's the SD? Also probably about one and one and a half to two. Maybe. I mean, you're you're looking at. It's not a particularly symmetric distribution. It's not. I'll just say. Not. But as far I, as but lessons I am, go, well, let's get, let's cut out the quarterbacks and uh, who, who might last a long time. <laughs> but this is exactly why we but want to understand. Really, an extra. I mean, I think just to, before you answer that question, you are definitely way out in the tails of this distribution, having a long career, six now, years. Now, and one answer could be, you know, I was misunderstood in college, like right. I, they, that, that I was underdrafted. That's yes. a simple answer, but we're looking for other elements as well because my sense is that it's not just a given. I mean, this isn't my sense, and we know this that players who apply themselves, or sometimes it's players who end up in good systems. So we're just trying to understand your attribution for your success, and and you were talking about you know an hourly dedication to d- doing the right thing or the necessary thing. So I'm just curious, what what does that look like for an NFL player? Like what what does a day look like where you think you're actually separating yourself from those who maybe weren't you know did, I don't know weren't applying themselves as fully? I think that's that's a really good question. You're getting at a good a good topic uh, coming in. So if we were starting our meetings at seven thirty. It means getting there at six forty-five, getting in the warm tubs for about fifteen minutes, just to get your body, you know, the blood flow going in your body at six forty-five. Then coming into the meeting already knowing what they're going to present, so you were proactive about it. Talk to your coach, see what that was going to be installed that day, and then you know follow up with the next unit meeting again, expecting something to already knowing what's about to be uh, mm-hmm. taught. Mm-hmm. Then understanding how you're going to apply that on the field and already playing the practice playing the reps in your mind before you even get get there and just doing that on a daily basis just as you move forward and maybe in between that and practice actually watching the film of what you're going to practice that day 
And it, it really comes down to little, little bits like nuts and bolts and nuts and bolts that just all compound. Mm -hmm. And then maybe having the exact same meal every day that you know your body likes and that's able to give you energy for practice mm -hmm. and doing that every single day. And then once it gets to practice, you know, doing the right warm-ups and making sure your body's ready to go so you avoid injury. That's a huge setback for people in the NFL. I had minimal injuries. I had no significant injuries in the NFL. <laughs> but I think that was because that was due to an hour of prep work before practice just to make sure the body's kind of greased Got up it. and going. What, what yeah. role do you think, you know, people gave you an attribution because you went to Stanford? Like, this is a smart guy. He's going to be able to pick up things quickly. He's going to be able to learn the playbook. He's going to be able to contribute in lots of ways. I could also imagine there being negatives in the sense of people are like, oh, he went to Stanford. You know, he's not as great an athlete. How do you think net-net that turned out for you? Uh, that's a good question, too. I, I think you're, as a Stanford guy, you're fighting a perception of uh, he's not going to, you know, he can't be all in playing football. It's a, it's a gladiator sport. And a lot of people forget that as fans, too. I mean, you're watching, and it's the game's changing a little what bit. What do you mean by it's a gladiator sport? I mean, it takes a lot of, of battle instinct to play the game. Mm -hmm. You know, routinely you're playing 60 plays a game and in and, 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 and practices, you have to be ready to go for those. You can't physically step down, you know, or else it's, you're out. You know, once a coach sees you go down a few times physically, you're out. You know, the, the whole perception changes of you. So being able to commit yourself to that sort of battle instinct of mano y mano is something that you, you have to commit to. Um, and what was the other piece of your well, question? Well, I was going to ask you, like, well, on the – so – the perception of being ah, Stanford on the one yeah. side, this must be some you know a bright individual. The guy went to Stanford, but yeah. on the other hand, as you mentioned, Eric, can he have the gladiator mentality? How did that net work out for you? Do you think? Yeah, so yeah, that piece you know, you do have to fight that perception and make sure you meet that every day. So there's no thought, you know. And they also like to avoid guys who are quote locker room lawyers who might be in the locker room trying to you know talk bad about a coach or a concept or something. You know, there may be a little bit of skeptability there because uh, he's a smart guy or something like that. The other side is, oh, he's a smart guy. He should never mess up. Zero mess ups. Mm -hmm. He messes up. This is weird. You know, he went to Stanford. So you have that to kind of live up to. We have that kind of pressure in our <laughs> job. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. But never I, mess up. I, in listening to kind of your description of your day, the one thing I kind of feel like we could transfer to our own days is, can we get a warm tub? Is that, I mean, I feel like every morning I come in and it's a real struggle to get going in the day. And if I could just sit in a warm tub for a little while, I feel like... I, I could just meet the challenge of the day a little bit put better. That, put that request in, Shane. Yeah. Put that right. request in. You know, I wish I could do that with my brain before yeah. uh, Weiner comes <laughs> Well, in it's interesting because you, it's funny because the way you describe um, your preparation for the NFL is uh, we wish we had our students would do that. I mean, yeah. I, we hand out all our lectures. I'm sure they, time. Wish, they wish we would do that. that well, well, we, we try. But it's interesting listening to your, your description about routine because before I start, we, we, we've been doing the show for four years and we've had many people talk about what separates the absolute pinnacle of success at the professional levels from really everyone else. And what often comes down to and is routine, having a, a set of habits that, that you that reinforces your, your, your program and allows you to really become expert. I mean, Rick Peterson, who's been on our, our longtime uh, contributor to our show, has often talked about that, that sort of mindset. And, and that is how one becomes a, a professional athlete and, and stay at a professional level is to set up a practice a pattern that you just stick with. And I know we had a chance to talk a little bit before the show, and I asked you about Drew Brees, um, who you played with for, for two years, and, is, and even I know is, is potentially one of the best quarterbacks who ever lived. And, and uh, I don't know if you mind just telling everyone what, what you said about him that makes him so special. Yeah, I think he's the prime example and the pinnacle of routine. I saw him do the same thing 
really every hour, every day for the time that I was in New Orleans. And he was very enthusiastic about it and very serious about it and extremely detailed. Um, and that's something I you could notice instantly. And he also had the ability to be very present with you. You know, if you wanted to stop him in his routine and ask him a question and he's there, boom. So I think it was that combination of presence that he has and that commitment to, I would call it almost Navy SEAL routine. Uh, I really, that's that's the way I, I perceived it. And I think he was, he, he, he went about it in that way. What's an example? Um, I think the way that I would see him use the hot tubs, the cold tubs, the preparation for his shoulders in the mornings, studying the film for an hour and a half, two hours before practices, after practices, like in his own laboratory. That's like maybe just some some easy ones. Mm -hmm. In between, the way he ran practice was exactly the same, just in terms of getting the play, calling the play, Mm -hmm. making all those decisions, because he's making so many decisions in his head mm-hmm. before we even get to the line. Mm-hmm. And if you were to see, if you were to be in the huddle and hear him, and this is even a practice, you'd think we'd be playing in the Super Bowl. And that's another thing that makes a great player in the NFL is guys that can make every day like a Super Bowl type play. Mm-hmm. And he's an example. Like if if you were to see him on a Tuesday in the third week, you'd be like, this guy's playing the Super Bowl. The way he's calling <laughs> the plays. And he's getting plays out really, really fast mm-hmm. so that he has more seconds to make the decisions. Because in New Orleans, they'll have they might be calling one play, but there's three plays built into that one play. Mm-hmm. And that's him making decisions and reads. So, mm-hmm. you know, the ability to do that takes a lot of that study mentally that he's doing in between all of our meetings before and after. And then physically, I saw him do just the same thing with the same intent every day with his shoulders, his throwing. He's very strong, even though, you know, he's a small guy. <laughs> Sorry, Drew. <laughs> so let's, see, let's, let's stay with Breeze for a second. Yeah, it's like my size. <laughs> How big is he just doing? I don't know the What's answer. What's he really? He's six up. He's six feet. He's six uh, feet. I don't know. I think yeah. he's six feet. Okay, <laughs> that's small. So. What, what Eric is saying is he's a lot smaller than he is. I think that's what that, is, that glint in his eyes meant. So let's say with Breeze for a second. We have trouble with individual performance evaluation in football because of how interdependent performance is. More so than any other sport, we can't really isolate a guy and say he's this good or that good because he's surrounded by guys. So, mm-hmm. you know, your ability to pick up the right blocker is influenced by what the line is doing and is influenced by what the running back does. And, and what the scheme is. And, and what the and scheme all, is. And it's, it's so many levels of complexity. Mm-hmm. So an extreme position is that we basically just don't know how good people are individually because we never observe them perform individually. But can you give us an example? So quarterbacks may be one of the most extreme examples of this. A really good quarterback like Breeze is going to make everybody else on offense and possibly even some folks on defense better. Can you give us some examples of ways in which Breeze the way he went about things, the way he performed, whatever, improved other people on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, I think the first bucket I would put in is the ability for him to diagnose the defense and call the right play. So just for an example, um, I'm just going to throw out some lingo for a play. Uh, it might be um, trips left, dragons right, 386, Y razor, X flat, check, dummy check, um, 386, uh, rodeo right. So that might just be a play given. And what I what I said was you know a package, um, a, a run to the left, a pass to the right, and then maybe a check out of that play, depending on the defense, to then call a pass play that he sees an opening. So that that ability to just diagnose the defense and get guys in good positions that can help the offense move along is what makes one piece that makes him mm-hmm. really, really good. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the first part. The second part is his um, his, how do I call it, his cadence in calling the play and getting the play 
done. So as if you watch him in a game, you'll see his energy. Just get everyone huddled and moved. The way he actually executes is really important in football. Watch some of the poorer quarterbacks, and they're kind of almost a little lackadaisical, a little slow, kind of, you know, make sure everything's okay. You know, this guy's a professional. He's been playing, what, was he at year 17? Like, this is not this is second nature to him, so he's able to just get it done really quick, and that keeps the defense on his toes. Okay. Again, those little steps, those little seconds are all edges for everybody against that defense. You have to add those up when you guys watch the games. Okay. And the third piece is his timing. Their timing offense is very, very important. So those wide receivers are all making critical steps and movements all off of timing. They are in sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, much more than you might uh, you know, otherwise know. Mm-hmm. And the ability for those wide receivers to turn, catch the ball while he's you know, jetting back and throwing the ball all happens. That's all coordination that they practice mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. before we dive into analytics, I want to ask you, built on, building on what Cade said, are you scored on every play? I've always said that to do analytics right, this is the mantra I heard 15 years ago from when I was first started to do sports analytics. If you want to evaluate players, whether it's through humans watching it, whether it's through technology, you must score every person on every play. Does that happen in the NFL? Yeah, yeah, it does. There is input. There's data for you, for people to dig into, and it's very detailed. And if, if you guys are familiar with the XOS software, have you heard about that or talked about that? Nope. Oh. You, is this right, proprietary? Well, you, or? you should know. Yeah, you guys should get your hands on that somehow. But XOS is a software that they use to cut up all the game film of, of really every team in the NFL of your team. They've been using it really since I've been in college. And it's manual input of data. And they put in the plays, the, the package, the play. I mean, everything you need, the yardage, everything that they can group and segment off. And you're able to watch film that way. I think people underappreciate how much film, especially at the NFL level, is being watched to prepare for practices, games, installations. I, we would sp- I'd spent more time in rooms preparing with film and doing analysis than I was on the field hmm. at the NFL level. But mm-hmm. you get any any statistical analysis that summarizes what you did? In other words, does someone grade your play minus one zero? Yes. Plus one, or and then you get results and you get information about whether tendencies of different opponents are. You get anything on on a spreadsheet? Yeah, uh, as far as I know, the most systems I was familiar with was uh, a plus, a minus, or a neutral. But I think based off of where I was, whether it was Stanford, or the NFL, they could all have their own language. But you were for sure graded every day on everything, and it's it's. I don't know how it's tracked, but I for sure they for sure track grades. We would hear about that all the time in the front offices, and you could see, even though you couldn't see on the XOS system, we would sometimes get grade reports from the games and be able to go through it with our coaches. It feels like a phenomenal learning opportunity that not only do you get graded every play, but you have video to back it up. So you can say, these are my you know, six worst plays in that game against whoever, and then dial it up and see exactly what happened. If you need to sit with someone to get guidance up. What better way is there to learn than exactly that? You're, you're right. And that's something I, I talk about with some of the business school students here and some of my instructors. Or what is some of the difference between being in a concentrated environment like a professional athlete, athletics and, and, and business? And I said, oh, man, pro athlete, it, it's, it's just it's so much better because I can on a daily basis evaluate how I'm doing. I get instant feedback. Mm. I mean, think about it. I'm doing a craft. I'm doing a job. And I'm getting uh, 50 opportunities to get feedback. It just doesn't happen in business <laughs> no. or, you know, it happens a little bit more in classes. You, know? you can kind of do that a little <laughs> yes, more. Yes, indeed. Uh, but but we, can do, we can do more than we do. I don't, I don't yeah. think we do have enough feedback. You know, we, don't, yeah. we don't do it quickly enough. We don't do it with the kind of well, – we don't have the And chance. as academics, we do not get a lot of feedback. 
We you, do not. You no, might go we, years I, without it. Yeah. But also, but in a classroom, it's interesting because the environment, I would potentially love to do more feedback, but the reaction from the students, not necessarily you, Eric, Eric is my student right now, is that they don't like it. I mean, yeah. if we give more exams, more quizzes, more, there's a stress Well, maybe you need feedback on how you're giving feedback. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're right. No, it's only coming towards me. But, yeah. people, but kids don't like their vegetables either. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's right. So, you know, we talked about the impact Breeze has on other players and the system as a whole, but there, there's also the impact of coaches. So you worked for a really interesting set of coaches. You would, Harbaugh at Stanford and, and whoever was before Harbaugh at Stanford. I forget who it was now. Good. Walt Harris. Yeah, no one really asked me about that. But, yeah, I had two years at Walt Harris who was at a pit. Okay. Yeah. Right, 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 right. And yeah. then you had Raheem Morris, uh, Shiano, and Sean Payton, of course. With That's them. right. So can you tell us anything about the impact of these guys on the and what you saw about the differences in them and how they impacted a team and your individual performance? Yeah, you know, I, I love being at Warden because people ask really good questions about sports, uh, and that's a really good one. Uh, yeah, they were all different coaches, and, and coaches come from all different flavors. Um, uh, when I was there with Harbaugh, Harbaugh came into a, a Stanford program that needed a lot of juice, a lot of energy, needed to be revitalized, and, and he was a, a, a rising star in, in the coaching ranks. And he was someone who was able to come in and make an environment that was really drab and flat and almost a little negative from the prior coach into being a very competitive environment. He came in and made everything competitive. He made grades competitive. He made what we ate competitive. He made um, training competitive, weightlifting, running. I mean, everything was documented. Everything was publicly displayed. I mean, he really created this this level of competition that I think was able to Gladiator. inspire guys. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Even and, off the field as much as on the field. Oh, yeah. It seeped okay. off the field. It, it was great. Like, we were posting GPAs on the wall. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's like, uh, you that's, know, it's like... May really only be at Stanford. Might only be at Stanford. <laughs> GPAs <laughs> on the wall. No, they might be... You know, was, he, it, was it uh, 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 average by the difficulty of the courses or... <laughs> no. No, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah Math they didn't major GPA. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but he was so. I was telling them earlier when I came in the the mark of a, a of a great coach because you know football's hard. You know football is hard. It's physical. It's every day. It's taxing. It's there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of performance. There's a lot of stress. Uh, it's really hard. So the great coaches because every coach wants to come in and work you hard. You have to work hard to be good at football. So the the great ones come in and are able to fool you a bit or inspire you to be you know, doing even better to be great or they figure out that line to just inspire you. So you forget that it's hard. Mm. Harbaugh's genius mm. is he, 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 I think he found himself there because he was able to do that and convince everybody that we were much greater than we were. We were not that great. Yeah. You know, we did, we ended up doing some great things, but yeah. he started that pretty early and the coaches that I think end up failing or, or end up just not doing very well with the players are the ones that don't figure that out. Because they're really doing about the same level of work. But if you don't get right. that player, that extra little, like, yeah, this is fun. Like, I'm trying to get better, then then it, then it fails. <laughs> That's so, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And then and Sean Payton more recently. So he's obviously having a real good run, has been for a while with the NFL. What In what way is he what, – what does he do that's special? Sean, he's on another level. He's up there with Bill Belichick as, a, as an NFL coaching great. He, he's so cerebral. And he has such a, a good feel for for players. I think he could get it, be at any level and, and be extremely good. He's got a great connection with players, and he and Drew and and the leadership of New Orleans and also uh, with their offensive coordinator and all the coaches, they have great relationships. And they, I think, they do a lot of the driving of that organization. Hmm. Um, so, in, you know, in terms of uh, running the day to day football, 
I don't think you're going to see anything better. Yeah. He, he, he's a great, both you know, mentally and also the, the football side, too. Mm-hmm. So what intrigues me is a little bit, you described the effect of the coach in, in your collegiate experience uh, in terms of the competitive environment and convincing you to work harder and think it's fun. But by the time you get to the NFL, you can imagine these are the pinnacle of success in, in professional sports. They're probably fairly, fairly well acclimated and already working really hard. So what's the difference what is much more what is more important about a, a professional coach in terms of player interaction as you said about Sean this Payton. is a strong assumption and we might actually get his opinion on yeah, that because I maybe, think it's too strong maybe, it's too strong okay. an assumption so in other words what what's I guess what I'm really asking is what needs to be different if anything about a professional coach versus because you're implying coach. that sort of like by by the time they get to the professional level that that they're they're almost Selected too experienced out. or jaded with that it, no, they, kind they, of they have skills already right? yeah. I mean, they should have a certain level of competitive um, uh, experience and talent. So you're, you're right, or and maybe not. No, <laughs> no, no. It is a it is a level that it, you know if you're not able to keep up for a certain amount of time where you are, it it, it takes care of itself. It's it's a very competitive environment. You're out. You know, you have to maintain. So in that way, it's there. I think uh, a great coach is able to um, navigate the players well through the adversity. So you know, sometimes great teams lose a lot of games. I've, I've seen it a lot of times. The game is often won, you know, in the last couple minutes now of of, of, of the games, which is really frustrating. So never seen that happen. I can't. <laughs> I, I, so I think like I think on a team level, they're able to to get a good pulse because these aren't college players; these aren't eighteen year olds. These are these are these are young men. They they have families, they have children, they have millions of dollars. Um, they also have a lot of stresses in their life, and there's just a, like a lot of anxiety, performance anxiety. So able to navigate loss as well able to connect with players through it and not not freak out or something like maybe a college coach i think you know from my experience college coaches feel a little bit uh unleashed to you know ah, you know scare, <laughs> scare you into work a little bit can't do that at the nfl that's because they're children is that more or less i mean because they're 18 to 22 yeah, 18 to 21 yeah. Yeah. and then the other side is the great coaches figure out matchups you know the nfl is about one-on-one matchups about great matchups it's not necessarily about you know great uh, concepts or, or great play calling it, it is it's critical at times but getting the right guys on the right guys at the right time is, is a big part of it and great coaches like sean he can do that Andrew. i feel like that's going on at the college level as well these days so there's something that they talk about with lincoln riley who will probably be in the nfl shortly is that he figures out like whoever the weaknesses in the in the other side he's going to find that one guy and he's just going to pound that one guy we're down to just the last few minutes we could have you back for a whole other section on analytics and football. To what extent did analytics affect your performance and re- experience in the NFL? And if not so much, you're the last six years while you were there, but going forward, where do you see analytics really making a difference in a player's life in the NFL? Yeah, good question. Again, I, I started to see it. I think it was rearing its head a bit when I was playing, and it didn't affect me as much. It, it did because I, I was, as of my career progressed, I was more and more involved with the running aspect of the game and the special teams, which uh, I, I don't think was driven as much by analytics, but I saw what was going on in the passing game and what was going on in, in the defense and how much every week was actually opened up. The day, Every day of the week that we're playing a new opponent opened up with analytics. And when I say analytics, I mean we're seeing percentages. We're seeing tendencies in all the different cuts of football, which we, there's a lot, but you know, roughly there's, you know, say, 10, you know, first down, second down, third down, where you are on the field, two-minute, uh, four-minute, uh, end of game. There's a lot of situations, so... They open up with all the percentages to see tendencies, to see tendencies and blitzes, tendencies and plays. We'd even have refs. We'd have profiles of them and see what their tendencies were. Really? Yes, mm-hmm. and what okay. they like to call. Mm-hmm. This guy's called holding. 
for the last two years x amount of times you know mm -hmm. so we'll see that and mm -hmm. i think now i've been out for a few years so i don't know but i know it's starting to to go up even more and that's a, another probably show conversation mm -hmm. um, we could have what a about show on what about analytics in your training even just you personally like did you keep track of how many reps and sprints and weights you lifted and tried to you know relate that to getting better performance on the field yeah i you know it wasn't it didn't look fancy and it didn't have a screen. So, you know, it's not online with that. But I think it's going there with biometrics. And, you know, the NFL, they've been tracking uh, biometrics for a while with Zebra. And uh, I know that's around. And you're seeing a lot of new digital media out there that's showing you know, more of that data. And I, I don't, I didn't use that uh, per se. I, I do that more mentally. I didn't keep track as much. But that could be an area that really helps players. I think analytics gets a little overlooked for the performance side of things. That could really help players. What's your perspective on, you talked about Zebra and the player tracking. There's a privacy issue there, and increasingly this is going to be a collective bargaining issue. And unless teams can provide some assurances, players are going to withhold this in some sense if they have the discretion. So what's your sense of what the risk is to players and how players feel about being monitored that closely? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think um, the, the NFLPA president is actually here in school, too. He's, he's in the executive MBA program. I'll, I'll connect you guys. He's got a, a really good granular opinion the, about the it. The current president? The current NFLPA player president. Player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Eric Winston. Uh, I'll connect you guys. But that, I think it's being – I think it's it's a big negotiating point right now, um, as especially as they lead into the next CBA. Uh, but I think it's an important issue for players because it's an asset to them. And the NFL has sort of been known now to take advantage of, of players and, and a lot of things um, for benefit. So I think it's a really important thing to, to, to fight over in the coming years. It's going to be an interesting and a big issue, and from an analytics perspective, an important one. Um, it would be a shame if the teams can't give the assurances the players need because otherwise the data are just going to go away. Yeah, that's so right. So the teams may have to accept not getting everything they'd like in order to get anything at all. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an interesting thing to follow. All mm -hmm. right, we're going to have to let you go. Unfortunately, happy to have you back down the road, Eric. But this has been Eric Lorig, former NFL fullback and tight end, former defensive end with the Stanford Cardinal, and currently an MBA student here at Wharton. Thank you for making the time, Eric. Thank you. Absolutely. And that's three quarters of the show this morning. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. Mm -hmm. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of Sports Analytics Live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. Danielle Bruno on soundboard there. She's our engineer. Keeps us on the straight and narrow. Couldn't do it without her. Cade Massey hosting with Shane Jensen, Eric Adi Weiner, and Eric Bradle. The whole crew is in here. Last time we'll all be in here in 2018. Fellas, happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to it's you. It's not the last time some of us will be some here, but all of us together. Some of us will be here next, next week. week. So don't, don't miss the show next week, and then we'll be back after the first. But you can join in this show if you want to. Give us a shout. We still have some time here. Open lines in the last half hour, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. Or email us. Email's businessradio at com. Great way to reach us if you're hearing us replayed over the next week. Or add us on, on Twitter, at WMoneyBall is the handle up there. We are just off an interview with Eric Lorig. That was great fun. Former mm -hmm. NFLer right here in studio with us, a first-year MBA here at Warden enlightening conversation interesting Sweetly. to get that perspective six-year nfl career very impressive especially for a seventh round draft pick coming out of college just a quick run through we've only talked about a few topics we've dug in deep on just a handful need to cover a few more bases before we hit the end of the show 
What about the NBA guys? We got some things going on there. I think there's some interesting good things going on in the NBA. Are there? Well, what, what is going on? Well, what caught, caught your eye? Yeah, what caught my eye was actually I'll call it modern statistics versus historical stats. And here's what I mean. If I told you there was a rookie in the NBA, rookie, and this is all I'll say a fact, person's averaging fifteen point four points a game, which is leading the NBA for rookies. Seven point two assists leading the NBA for rookies. Averaging 2.8 rebounds. This person's a guard, obviously. You'd say they're having a good rookie Mm -hmm. season, right? This person is having the third worst season in the history of the NBA for rookies. Now, let me tell you. The third what? Third worst. Now, let me say why. So, first I'll tell you who the player is. And I knew this was going to happen. Remember Trey Young from Oklahoma? Yeah. The guy could... He was practically the college football player, college basketball player of the year. Correct. The guy's guard, long range, could shoot from anywhere... Well, let me tell you a few other statistics now about him. His field goal percentage is 373. His three-point percentage is .243. So when you look at his player efficiency rating, which they rank every player, he's got the third worst in the history of the NBA. So I was contrasting historical stats, points per game, assists per game, rebounds, if you told well, I mean, me, you really—it's—it's it's less about historical. It, 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 you're contrasting cumulative stats versus rates, right? Because you know he's basically—he uh, must be just taking well, you an know absurd why? number and, of and, attempts. And the reason he is is because some, that if there's only thing someone shoots in the NBA every yeah. possession, unless there's a turnover, someone shoots. By the way, he leads the NBA in assist, uh, turnovers per possession as well. <laughs> he plays for the Atlanta Hawks, yeah. one of the worst teams in the NBA. Someone has to shoot the ball. He's shooting it a lot. But at historically bad percentages to yeah. shoot as many. But is this an investment? I mean, does he just need to get over his first year jitters and and he's got talent? I mean, what's the what's the investment? Well, here? I think I think great point. I think what you have to figure out is you have to adjust it for the best defender on every other team can yeah. cover Trey Young. Yeah, because he's the only person really right. that Atlanta has that can create their own shot and do some sort of offensive talent. The only reason I brought it up, Kate asked, what caught yeah. my eye. How historical stats? Look at the box score. Yeah, Trey Young at, so, is playing well. Given, but you look at the detailed stats. He can, he's not shooting the two well. He's not shooting uh, well, three let me, at two forty three. Let me talk about adding a, a, an additional level of detail to those stats. If we could sort of basically account for how contested each of these shots was, because if it is, he, it sounds like he's being disadvantaged by the fact that the best defender on every on on every opponent is is going to be on him. So if you could adjust for how contested each of his shots are, does would, would you, great, would you expect his efficiency it's, would go would, would actually kind of go up? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it would be hard to imagine it would hurt his standing yeah. based on these. And I think it actually it's the question that Kate asked Ravi about soccer, which is. Do you have more data than just did the ball go into the net? Yeah. So in this case, you picked up, Shane, some great data to have mm-hmm. would be, you know, we know this data exists and now. And they do have Distance that Distance of the defender from you. Yeah, but, but yeah. Shane's also asking I mean, for you, the you, quality of the defender, which is uh, generally well, that's it's another, easily calculated. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, right. it would be sort of, that's right, that's right. Well, I mean, so, that is something. You know, hey, so what you guys have done is you've, you've done, this is why we have a show with lots of people. Mm-hmm. I talked about the difference between what I'd call f- la- old generation yeah. stats 
to modern. And now you've given even a better modern version, which is let's not even just look at his efficiency rating. Let's look at even more advanced yeah. stats. More that multivariate. Can be done. Basically, yeah. the more so multivariate, the better. That would be great. Uh, one other NBA note I want to hear from you on is the Sixers. They are 11 and 3 since Jimmy Butler came over. Do you believe in the trade now? Some of us were skeptical up front. Are they? Is this an easy fourteen game stretch for them? What do you make of the eleven? Well, they, they should. They were expected to be a very good team. So, I mean, what's the what's the excess wins over expectation? It On couldn't be more than one sample. or two. Okay, so fine. I'm, I'm not. I'm, I'm reserving judgment at this point. Also, um, really, the issue for the Sixers is can they really beat the best teams, and not just any old team? Okay, fine, 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 Roddy. But you and I, we're not watching play by play. Yeah, Eric's watching that everything. Every, every, Eric's yeah, watching yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so are you saying there been sort of some resounding victory? So, against yes. good teams so in let that me say, let me streak. say what he adds to the team. And this I would have predicted from before. And by the way, they have these stats too. Um, right now, except for Russell Westbrook, in game clutch situations, however they define it, Jimmy Butler's the second best player in the NBA. So here's what Jimmy Butler gives you. Okay? Do we all agree the three best players on the Sixers are Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Jimmy Butler? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, by far. You agree, at the end of the game when you need to score, you cannot give the ball to Ben Simmons because Ben Simmons can't shoot the ball. I've always talked about if if your center's your best player, you can't get him the ball in time to do something. That's your Ewing theory number 13. Correct. Now, you've got a guy. You you can get a guy who you can put the ball in his hand. He can beat people off the dribble. He can make decisions. So what I think, and by the way, this relates to another stat. The Sixers are 19-9 with a plus 2.4 uh, scoring differential, which is very small. The for Sacramento a team, yeah. Kings have the same scoring uh, differential and are fourteen and fifteen, so they're five games worse with pretty much the identical same score. Right, the Lakers are the same two point four. The, sa- the yep. Lakers are the same two point four. Fellas, let's take a phone call. Reed from Toledo, welcome to the show. Reed, what do you got? Hey guys, how we doing? Good, good, good. How about yourself? Uh, good. I have a comment and a quick question. Okay. One, I want to let you know, I am a sales guy. I'm in the car all day, every day. I listen to sports talk radio basically from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m., uh-huh. and I love your show. Great. And I really Thank love, you. It's almost like a break from regular sports talk radio, <laughs> which yeah. if you if you guys listen to it, which I'm sure you do, it's all the same. It's mm-hmm, all the yeah. same hot takes, the same format, the same. Doesn't matter if you're in New York, L.A., Ohio, wherever. Our takes above replacement is off the charts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's just wonderful to have. You know, it's hard to be different, and it's really hard to be good and different, and you guys managed to do that, and I really appreciate it. Reed, you're a very good salesman. Thank you. So There you go. So here's my uh, question. I'm trying to convince my brothers and my dad to put together. I think we put together the $7 We buy an NBA D-League team or Gatorade League team. And I think it'd be awesome. I want to get your thoughts on that investment, and also, who would you hire to run your analytics if he did own an NBA Gatorade uh, League team? All right, that's a terrifically fun question. Um, we're gonna we're gonna let you go. We'll visit with it a little bit. We don't have a lot of time between now and then the show, but we can take this thing up at another time. It's a it's a great question. Reed, appreciate the phone call. What do you think, fellas? Does the, do they make money? Do D League teams make money? I, I, Is it like I kind minors? of doubt it. I would, yeah. You're gonna, you're well, other objectives. It's we a actually, passion project. We actually have a, uh, there's a, I have a friend who is a Wharton professor at entrepreneurship. He owns a whole bunch of minor league teams. He says they're very profitable in baseball. In baseball. Mm. And you, they're unheard of. They're single A. You know, they're in weird places. But they are 
attractions. People come to them. They mm-hmm. watch the games. They, there's gate, and there's very little money paid on to the players. So D in this case stands for developmental. Yes. This, it, yeah. it, it, plays, it plays a purpose for the NBA. Well, so does the minors in baseball. So it might be profitable. Mm-hmm. Is $7 million the right price? We'd have to look at the uh, I mean, there's the a economics. culture for going to baseball games. Yes. D- I mean, deep, long-seated culture in the U.S. for going to baseball games, kind of regardless. Basketball, I'm Thank not you, sure, has the, same, the Thank same, you. Not, has the same thing. <laughs> Reminding everyone of that. But... Uh, <laughs> I mean, this the I don't have a I, quick. I think it's an well. I think I it, I'm going to go. I'm just going to use one quick thing that Shane said today, and Adia said many times. Tell me the city. Tell me the population size, and tell me the rate of attendance needed. Not the number. The rate needed to be profitable. So uh-huh. if you're going to be in a metro area of two million people, and you need to fill up eight thousand seats. So what rate do you need? What do we know about historic rates of people going to these games? And are you extrapolating to say, well, we need to, we're going to be so great at marketing, we need to get a 50% increase in the rate to be profitable. I'm like, whoa, I'm not sure I would do that investment. So to me, it's a sample size times rate problem. And what do we know about people going to these games? That's right. Can you do something in minor league basketball like they've always done in minor Mm -hmm. minor league baseball, which is through promotion, through sales, through Through on-field. But think about baseball, which is different from basketball. Basketball is baseball. When you go to a minor league game, you are seeing the future stars. Every team has someone who they they are highly touting is going to be a terrific major league player in a few F- years. Falsely, but touting Falsely, all the same. No, but, yeah. but but in basketball, the best ones are already in the MLB. I mean, in the NF, in the NBA, and mm-hmm. they go out of college right to it. So it's not like there's a system of development. It is a developmental. No, this is a developmental league. So it, I it mean, is. There, I mean, we don't yeah, know. But, how many, there aren't that many success stories. Yet, well, right, but right. I mean, I would I, it would be interesting to see that success rate versus like a single A. Baseball success rate, like I mean, how many of those guys actually go, make it to the majors? Go, let's go backwards, though, and 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 we can do the same thing for the NBA. In MLB, almost every player has played in single A, and in, in the and the NBA, almost none have played in the D, the yeah, D League. So just well, the same backwards comparison. So it's just not no, but that yeah, okay, but true. But how many? Again, I would be intrigued by the proportion of players that like. Play that that are sure, only in the same way time. that get more than like a cup of coffee at the MLB sure, level. Either way, it's a great. The, 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 the other thing I would the, add: there's value to the NBA teams, though. If I mean, the, I think the greatest value is to the NBA teams because yeah. you can run experiments and you can play with new technologies and you can work out analytics details. And there's yeah, lots it, you as can far do. as the analytics guys run that, I mean, because we. I feel like we had on our show a, a little while ago those guys, uh, they, were, they were analytics guys that actually ran that. Sonoma. The Sonoma team yeah. or yeah, whatever. Ben yeah. Lindbergh. Yeah, yeah, Ben right. Lindbergh. That's right. That's right. Ben Lindbergh won the Sonoma well, team, and they were doing a lot of really cool experimentation. If you owned it, you would, I mean, if you, the reason, you, the, what you might want to do from that is yeah. innovation. You yeah. want to, like, try things, let new people come through, do something new like that. But I'm not sure how well that serves well, you the sort of, owner. You, st- you sort of, uh, not stole, but you elucidated, uh, elucidated my idea. Buy a team and play it all by analytics. Yeah. yeah, maybe that would generate some attraction. Like the coach is going to make every decision by analytics. Can, yeah, guys. Are, I mean, just, just. I mean, I'm not saying that one, but you place some angle on it that makes it. But different. Ben Lindbergh's right, right, book angle. about his experience. They, they intended to do just that with the with right. the Sonoma team. It turns out to be a management book. Yeah. Because they couldn't actually use analytics because of the everyone around him was resistant. No, of course, and it, it turned out to be exactly about about people. It's the same lesson again <laughs> yeah. and again and again. 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 Anal- analytics, analytics think analysts think that they can run it pure analytically, and you, and you can't. You got to consider people. Even the Daryl Morey's of the world now will talk as much about culture within an organization as about analytics. They realize that the that the the real accomplishment is to do both of those things. 
All right, guys, we're going to do some NFL in a sec, but there's a little bit of college. Did you know there's college football now? Yeah. Again, after a weekend, well, they're all off, backing a, out because now they're trying to get make sure they get drafted. Well, without some being of them injured. are doing that. It's true. It's true. But we had one very quiet weekend. Army Navy was the only game last weekend, but now we have five bowls, five bowls this weekend. So we're back to bowl season now. Look, they're the early bowls, and so they're not terrifically exciting. But there's one, maybe the marquee game, if we can call it that, is Arizona State-Fresno State. This is the New Mexico Bowl. Both of these teams are decent teams. This is like, in our rankings, this is like number 40 versus number 45 or something like that. There's at least some real football being played out there. That is, And, and the lines are the lines pretty close. I mean, this is going to be there's like a There's a lot real of real game. football played out there Sundays. Well, come on, oh. Audie. Oh, come on. Why should we care about a 45 versus a 41 college team? Because college is exciting football. The we we, we spent a than, long time earlier this morning talking about a ranked 70 college basketball team. <laughs> yeah, Why yeah. do we care, Audie? Well, because they well, also because, played the defending national champions yeah, sure. and beat them. I, I, Villanova was number one going into the, the season. Street. <laughs> Another reason to care is that there's only, whatever it is, 30 games left in the 35 games left in the season. Then the long, cold winter. Yeah. The, part so also, soak it up the reason I'm interested in that game as well is because, obviously, it's the former Jets coach, Herm Edwards, Who's now the coach at Arizona Who's State? Had a un- surprisingly successful. Surprisingly year. successful year. I w- I've always been interested. Like, how will his experience in the NFL and his long yeah. time off from coaching translate back to the college? Herm Edwards, Herm Edwards is at That's Arizona State. That's great. That's All right, let's shift gears and talk about the NFL. Moneyball matchups. All right, guys, we've got a full slate. No more buys. Three three weeks left in the regular season, a few playoff spots to sort. Eric, you want to walk us through? What do you think? Well, there's two obviously marquee games that could very well represent not only it'll definitely affect the playoff seating in the AFC, but they could be games we will see in a couple of weeks. Two marquee games, massive games. Chargers at Chiefs. Yeah. Just an unbelievably titanic war. This is a Thursday night game, no less. Thursday this is night a game. Tomorrow night. And the game that Shane and I have been waiting for all season, New England at Pittsburgh. I understand Pittsburgh's lost some luster because they've lost some games recently. I would be surprised to see a rematch of that in the playoffs. But Why? Okay, let's take them one at a time. New England-Pittsburgh. New England going to Pittsburgh. Yeah. This is, uh, this is Sunday. Yeah. New England's it's basically, a, yeah, just barely. barely, barely. But, I, I like New England in that game. I, it's not, it has nothing to do with the previous game. Like, they're going to come back. This, that's not the Belichick mindset, any of this. New England's just the better football team. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh's a flawed team. They're, they're, they're. Matt, Massey Peabody right now, number six and seven. Barely any different. Yeah. For right or wrong, that's is what that Massey Peabody field? has. Them. That's on a neutral field. So basically, you think that the line's off? We think the line's off. We, we, we think there's about a three is point a edge here. This you? is a pick. We'd say Pitt, yeah. without, without regressing to the line and all that, this is one of the bigger edges of the weekend. So New England's we like four points better in, on the money line. They're minus one. They're four points better than Massey Peabody would have it in Pittsburgh. Three, yeah. and, three, and, a half, yeah. three and a half point. Yeah, so I, I like, again, I like New England in the game. I think I would lead New England in the game as well, um, just because Pittsburgh has looked so bad for three weeks in a row or so. Um, and so I, I guess I'll, I'll 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 take an Eric momentum line and say say New England's going to be the one that what, what rolls out that? of their lose loss war. Adi, I'm interested in the Philadelphia LA game. Obviously, it's a, you know Philadelphia. I love to sort of root for the home team, but it's interesting because this is the Philadelphia was is a preseason and they've fallen because of bad 
basically bad play. And L.A. is extremely strong, but has lost last week. So you have this sort of recency mm-hmm. issue. Uh, and how do you work this out? Obviously, L.A. is a big favorite. But uh, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm, taking, I'm taking the Eagles with, of course, the line. So yeah, huh. Massey Peabody. So you make think it, the Eagles keep it close? Yeah. I mean, Massey Peabody has it at seven. I, I'm with you on that. I'll take I'll take the points on that. Just one, one quick thing that that related to the line caught my eye again in sports. Quickly, ten seconds. Twenty third consecutive team that had been underdog by more than fourteen covered again last week, which I told I made this that. stat yeah, up. And the, the Bengals covered against twenty three in a row. Correct. The yeah. Bengals have covered. They you covered against the Chargers. Half of them to not lo- cover. So and, that's amazing. And I may have profited from that. Again, and just just a few seconds left. This Charger KC game tomorrow night. It's a three and a half point line. Who do you guys have? Quickly, KC. I think KC. I, I Mahomes until he does something. To, you know, until he has a bad game, I think he lights him up again. I'm with Professor Jensen. I'm with Professors uh, Bradlow and Jensen. Wow. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we we uh, I'll, I'll take the Chargers just to keep it interesting. But right. we've got some good football this time. You're fun to shift gears to the NFL as the playoff races tighten up. That has been another two hours here on Wharton Moneyball. Very much appreciate you listening to us. We'll do it again next week for Shane Jensen, for Audie Weiner, for Eric Bradlow, for Daniel Bruno, and Matthew Dots. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.